Welcome to Modern Sales, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business owners, and salespeople looking to have more and better conversations with your perfect clients. You'll get a healthy scoop of psychology, behavioral economics, and sales studies to help you create win-win relationships. I'm your host, Liston Witherell, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Modern Sales. I am Liston, and I am here to help you build a better consulting business. I want to help you scale your sales up, grow that thing as much or as little as you want to. You may not want to grow too much, and I can help you with that too. But that's what I want to cover today. Today, I have a guest. His name is Carl Sakis. We're going to have a great conversation. He's been called the Dr. Phil of agency consultants. So strap in, this is going to be a good one. I'm going to get to Carl in a second, but first I wanted to let you know, if you're looking for help growing your agency, all you have to do is apply for a strategy call with me. Go to liston.io slash strategy. You can fill out a few quick questions. I'll take a look. If we're a potential fit to work together, then I will let you know. And if not, no hard feelings, I'll give you some free stuff. So that's liston.io slash strategy. And now, Carl Sakis, my friend, how are you today? Liston, great to be here. Doing well. Awesome. And so you've been called the Dr. Phil of agency consultants. And when I asked you, how should I introduce you? You said you're an agency consultant focusing on growing pains. What does that mean for all of our listeners? Growing pains can take many forms. Uh, It could be that you have a lot of revenue coming in. Maybe revenue is up, but your profit margins are down. Maybe you're having trouble retaining your key people, but you're not sure why people are leaving. Maybe you have a lot of leads coming in because they've worked with you to figure that out and grow. And now they're having trouble keeping up when it comes to actually fulfilling all the work they're selling. Uh, So those are some examples, but uh, the goal ultimately is if you're having growing pains at your agency, I can help you conquer them. All right. Now, Carl, you are the only Dr. Phil of agency so far as I know. And I think Jay Bear gave you that moniker. But I'm wondering, how did you get into this in the first place? Like, how did you just land here? I started in digital marketing back in high school. So in the days of dial-up and IE3, started learn HTML, started building websites. And fast forward to more recently, I was a PM and director of operations at one agency and then another. And I realized there was this opportunity where people who start agencies usually love some aspect of the work, could be design, development, strategy, copywriting, PR. And so they start an agency. And the problem is when you're running an agency, you aren't just a designer, developer, copywriter, and so on anymore. You are now a business owner and you're responsible for everything. Hopefully you'll be able to delegate over time, but Ultimately, your job is to make sure it all gets done. And I realized there was this opportunity where I, growing up, I'm a fourth generation business owner, grew up helping in my family's small business. One of my grandfathers was a business professor for 40 some years. I hear stories about consulting with big companies all over the world. And so all of the business things that I noticed agency owners struggling with were things that just came naturally to me. So I put everything together in, in 2013 and launched my business, what's now Sakis and Company, doing coaching, consulting, and training for agencies all over the world. Okay. So I want you to review here, go back in time. We're going to jump into our time machine. We're going to hit rewind on the tape deck and you go back to 2013 and you are just starting this for the first time. And I guess I'm wondering 
Like what were some of the first steps that you took? I mean, you talk about helping agencies with growing pains. What were some of the first steps you took to start the flywheel going for yourself? One of the first things was I pitched my then boss on my going from full-time as the head of operations to becoming a part-time contractor. So going from 40 to 60 hours a week salaried to 10 hours a week as a contractor. The goal there was to build up a revenue flow initially and then also free up time to to launch the business. So I put together a proposal, uh, gave her the proposal, which was really more about her than about me, about how she benefited. Uh, and ultimately, her only question was, when do you want to start? That was great. Worked with her for a few months and actually worked out of the same co-working space. And then once that wrapped up, it helped that I already had that initial revenue flow and I had been able to use the time to start my marketing, start connecting with prospective clients. Okay. And I want to give you a compliment, my friend. When we first met, I forget when this was, earlier in the year, I think our mutual friend Philip Morgan introduced us maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that's right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked on the phone and you asked for my address. Maybe your assistant asked for my address. And I didn't think much of it, but I'd say within a week I received all of the physical media that you had, which I think were like two or three books. Yes. And I have to tell you, I haven't read the books cover to cover. I definitely open them and flip through them. But that was such a different and unique and impactful experience. So I don't know that I have a question, but I wanted to compliment you and let you know that that definitely had an impression on me and very few people would take the time to do that. So I immediately knew that there was something different about you than most other people I meet in the industry. Well, thank you. What is more normal for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. Why don't you be the podcast host for a second? <laughs> What's really interesting is, you know, like I give referrals all the time. I think I've made a few connections for you. Like I've definitely on a weekly, maybe every other week basis, I'm connecting two people for something, right? For some reason. And what I always find fascinating about that is it's very rare that the service provider who I'm connecting a potential client to will even say thank you. Wow. It's less than half the time. Will they even respond and say, hey, thanks so much for that referral? I mean, even if a referral isn't a good fit, you should be saying thank you for thinking of you as a potential match. Right. You could think of everything as uh, raising a child or conditioning a dog. Right? So like if someone does a behavior that you want to see more of, you want to encourage them and say, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I don't expect that everybody's going to send me a book. But when you asked what is normal behavior, I think this falls in line with a little bit more normal or average where I don't even get a response from the person, but I sent them potentially ten to $50,000 of business. I will thank my parents for that. Growing up, it was like, send the thank you note, send it promptly, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think that also reflects that I think perhaps there's a culture in business around the idea of like, you did it yourself. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you did a lot of things yourself, but you've got a team of people supporting you. Maybe it's employees, maybe it's freelancers. You have some sort of a team supporting you. And although you're perhaps the hero of the story, you're not doing it alone. And then, of course, ideally, you make your clients the hero in, in their story. And you're not really the hero at all. If I've learned anything this year in the amount that I've built up my own business, it's that 
it's much bigger than me. I mean, it's, I've spent a lot of time and invest in personal branding. Like for instance, this podcast is creatively named after me, but I have an editor and I have an assistant and I have other people helping make this happen. I mean, I wouldn't be able to sustain this level of effort just as I'm guessing you didn't slap the label on that envelope and package up the books to send to me. I'm guessing someone else did that. Maybe you did. I don't know. But I think in that case, I probably did. I will get my assistant's help if I'm doing several at once. But I mean, delegation. Well, so what we can agree on, Carl, is that you're the hero and I'm not. So no worries. I don't know if we go there, but we we (laughs) each be our own hero. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to get to delegation. I definitely want to talk about that. But before we get there, I saw an article on your website, which I think is a great kind of lead in to this discussion around delegation, because I also have a lot to say on that, but we'll let you do 90% of the talking, I promise. (laughs) The article that piqued my interest was titled something about, is your agency a lifestyle agency or an equity agency? Yes. And I was hoping you can talk a little bit about that and why an agency owner should be thinking about that now. Yeah, it's an important question a variety of ways. So first, here's the difference by definition for it. A lifestyle agency is the default for most agencies. The idea is that your agency is designed to pump out reasonable profit margins, ideally 20 to 30% net, and meanwhile be paying you an above market salary package or or other compensation package, more than you'd make if you're an employee somewhere else. The idea there is that the agency is ultimately an income asset. It keeps pumping out money for as long as you want to to work there. That's one side, that's the default. And you're not necessarily planning to sell. The other end of the continuum, so you've got lifestyle, the other end is equity. And the idea there is that you are growing your agency in order to sell it for some sort of an exit, some sort of a payday, And for most people I talk to, they're looking for a million or several million dollars equivalent when they sell. And in that case, you're investing in the agency's growth along the way. Hopefully, you're still paying yourself well as you go along, but you're highly dependent on this big payday at the end. It's risky, but you ultimately may make more money in the end. Most people are somewhere in the middle, but they tend to lean one way or the other. And I'll actually ask people about this in my prospect and client intake process, where do you lean on the lifestyle versus equity continuum? And I have you know, an article on it. And knowing that is helpful. Delegation is important in either case. But Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. If I know where an agency owner wants to go, we can work backwards from there, whether it's get the money out now through the lifestyle side or focus on maximizing the valuation to get the money out later on the equity side. Yeah. And so obviously one of the big differences, if I'm running one versus the other is how much I pay myself versus how much I sink back into the business. I'm guessing that's one of the big differences. Yes. What are some of the other things that people need to think about in terms of how their day-to-day or even month-to-month life would be different in terms of what they're actually doing? There's a concept called needed but not necessary. And this came from Mark Cuban, the investor, and I've applied it to an agency management perspective. So in his example, he was talking about uh, Mark Cuban, when he invests in companies, he wants to be needed, but not necessary. That is his investment is needed, but it's helpful to the business, but it's not necessary in the sense that if they don't get his investment, they go out of business. 
when I saw that concept, I've applied that to agency management, which is you want to make yourself needed but not necessary as an agency owner. That is, your team needs you. You're not going to disappear for a year and everything's fine, but you are not necessary to every single day-to-day decision. Right. One thing I think about too is it's not required, but a lot of if you're in an agency, any service business, if you're able to build up some sort of intellectual property, IP for shorthand, if you can build up some IP, that really sweetens the deal. And that's something that can be leveraged and sold beyond an individual. And so I was wondering in terms of the services or the way you do the services, does anything change in one versus the other? I mean, I would say it's always a good idea to be looking for IP development opportunities. For instance, about a year and a half ago, I was looking for ways to boost the production values of my agency coaching program. And one of the things that I did was I realized, wait a minute, I've got all these templates and tools and all that I've built for my clients. Why don't I put them all together in one place? And that turned into what I now call the agency resource library. So it's 50 plus tools, templates, SOPs, stuff like that. And so initially for year, year and a half, that was a clients only thing. So you'd have to be a coaching or a consulting client, you know, pretty hefty budget. And I've now turned that into its own information product. So you can buy access to just the resource library, but that's a long time in the making. That's based on everything I've been doing since 2013 that I've been developing. And some things go back even before that. But the key thing was that I was looking for, wait a minute, there are these patterns. More than one person needs this thing. Why don't I bundle it together? One of the risks that agencies have is you've got silos and say there are certain questions or certain requests that different clients have for different team members, different employees you have. Mm -hmm. They're thinking, oh, well, two people asked this question. But if you were to go up a level, they'd be thinking, well, 10 people asked this question. And then if you're there as the owner, you're thinking, wow, every single client or almost every single client has asked this. We need to create something to meet that need. That could be IP, that could be a service, it could be something else, but it helps to have that perspective on things, to be looking for those opportunities, and then not just to see them, but to look for ways to capitalize on them. Well, and I think also, like I have a coaching client right now who identified a client came to him and said, hey, we're this type of company in this industry, and we want this very specific solution. And he came to me and he asked, how should I price it? And I asked him, do you think that other companies in this industry would benefit from this solution? And he said, yeah, I mean, of course. And I said, well, maybe you should license it to them so that you retain the right to sell it to someone else who's maybe not a direct competitor, but could use it in a different regional market, right? Or state or local market. Yeah. So I think there's lots of ways to leverage those things that we're seeing. I will say, check your contract. Either it needs to say, you retain ownership and the clients have a perpetual paid up, what have you, license to use it, or vice versa. The clients own it, but you've got the license. The key is that you need to clarify that, yes, they're getting their instance and this and that, and they have ownership and control over it once they've paid you everything. But you do want to have the clause to reflect that you have the right to reuse it in other capacities, Uh, not sharing any of their confidential info, of course. I agree with that. And that needs to be a conscious decision made prior to the contracting stage. Yes. You would need to actually proactively do that. It wouldn't just show up. Exactly. That's the thing in life. Things 
some things just show up. But when your agency or your other business is your primary asset, I wouldn't recommend relying on happy accidents. (laughs) But they're nice occasionally, too. Sure, sure. I did want to ask you about, you mentioned a lifestyle business is one that kicks off, say, 20 to 30% net profit. So that's great. But I guess what I'm wondering from the equity perspective, of course, you can continue to build a bigger and bigger asset. But in your experience, do profits also scale up along with headcount? Because that's the way a lot of people think about growing an agency. We'll just add more and more people and we'll make more money. If we get 20% off of every dollar, then let's just get more dollars in the door. But I've actually seen that that's not always the case because the management glut can become huge if you're duplicating your internal organizational structure every time you add a new person. So how do you think about dealing with that? As you grow, you do have to add additional administrative overhead layers, management, and so on. At certain breakpoints, usually 8 to 12 people, you're adding a project manager. Sometime between 15 and 25, you're adding an account management structure, probably adding a salesperson. Typically in the 30s, you're adding someone who's dedicated to HR and culture. As you're into the 50s, you're hiring C-level type people, that kind of thing. Typically, these are people in roles who aren't as highly billable as a subject matter expert, like a designer, developer, strategist, writer, and so on. So your margins may go down. Part of the agency model assumes that you've got senior people who are somewhat less billable, who are managing highly billable junior people that you're paying less to. Now, there are some risks and challenges with that business model, but that's pretty common. In theory, as you grow, say you're maintaining 20% as you grow or with some bumps along the way, the absolute number is growing. I will say that clients who run bigger agencies tend to have higher levels of stress on a regular basis. So you probably want to think about your stress tolerance. For instance, worked with a client whose compensation was about 180000 a year and at the time had about 40 employees. I had another client right around the same time with four full-time people, including himself, and he was paying himself 160000 a year. So 20000 less, he was definitely way less stressed out. Yes, much happier. An easier way to make 160000 than to have 40 employees. That said, if you're heading toward equity, there, if that's your goal, you're going to have to grow. Different M&A consultants have different perspective on this. Sometimes it's you need to have at least 10 million in revenue. Others, it might be as little as 5 million. But if you're at one or $2 million, it's going to be harder to get someone to acquire you. And I have an article about building a Dream 100 acquirer list based on the Chet Holmes concept of the Dream 100 client list. Mm-hmm. And you may find someone, I have clients who've been acquired less than 5 or $10 million, but you need to find someone who's really interested. If someone's coming in off the street, as one M&A person mentioned, it takes almost as much time to do due diligence on a $2 million agency as a $20 million agency. Right, right. At least relatively. And if the bigger agency or the bigger firm is looking to add revenue, perhaps because they're trying to grow to do their own exit in the future... It's a lot easier to acquire one $20 million firm than 10 $2 million firms. I'm not sure. Maybe I missed it. But do you find that the profitability scales with employees? Are you just saying it's dependent and that's what you're trying to communicate through the example of the two clients you had? 
profit margins can be somewhat stable. They're going to drop a bit as you hire additional management layers where you're paying the salary, but you're not getting the billables. But for sure, if you're maintaining roughly the same margins as you grow, your profits should grow on an absolute basis Mm -hmm. because you're getting, say, 20% on 5 million versus 20% on 1 million. Yeah. The question is, do you actually get that? Yeah. And and I guess it also depends. There's a lot can go wrong. Yeah. And are we talking about net income? And also if you have some larger clients at the $5 million range, like, yeah, something that goes wrong there could really basically wipe out your profits for even over a year, a year or two. Yeah. The key is to avoid getting into a client concentration problem that is getting more than 20% of revenue from any one client. And you can do that in any size, though if you're $5 million in revenue, well, you better make sure that no one's more than a million dollars a year. But you need people who are approaching that to help you reach that without having a, a zillion clients. I have an article on what is the ideal client count. For me, that's between 10 and 20 active clients. There are plenty of agencies who have way more than that. I would say that agencies who have way more than that, as I look at their numbers, they tend not to be highly profitable. Mm-hmm. because they're wasting resources across different clients they have a client dilution problem. Interesting. Okay. Yep. One thing I would imagine, Carl, is as these companies are getting bigger, one of the things that they need to think about is delegation, which is something that you're very, very attuned to. And actually what spurred this conversation that we're having right now in the first place is this article that you wrote about the steps that someone needs to take in order to delegate effectively. Yes. And we're going to talk about that in episode two tomorrow. So if you're not subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the rest of my conversation with Carl Sakis. See you in the future.